0: Hello and welcome to this week's MEMCAST. My name is Dr Rachel Saville. I'm one of the respiratory registrars in the East Midlands. And this week's episode we're going to be talking about the diagnosis and interpretation of pleural effusions. So a pleural effusion is it's a collection of fluid between the visceral and parietal surfaces of the thorax. It develops when more fluid enters the pleural space than is removed. Some potential mechanisms are if there's increased interstitial fluid secondary to pulmonary capillary pressure being increased. This is usually in heart failure or if there's increased permeability, such as in pneumonia. Sometimes there's decreased plasma oncotic pressure, such as in hypoalbuminemia or increased pleural membrane permeability or obstructed lymphatic flow. And that's in things like pleural malignancy or infection. Typically a patient with pleural effusion will present with gradual onset breathlessness and a cough with or without pleuritic chest pain. And It's important when you're taking a history to ask questions that could suggest an underlying cause and that's things such as weight loss or haemoptysis which might be more suggested of cancer, if they've got any history of joint problems such as rheumatoid arthritis or features that would suggest heart failure like orthopnea, PND or swelling. When you're examining the patient, you'll find reduced chest wall expansion on the affected side along with decreased or absent tactile fermitus and breath sounds with a stony, dull percussion note. So how would you investigate someone who presents with a pleural effusion? You may have confirmed the presence of an infusion on imaging. That's things like a chest X-ray, CT or ultrasound. A PA chest X-ray can show anything from just mild blunting of the costophrenic angle up to a complete whiteout of the lung. If it's been caused by an effusion, this usually pushes the trachea away. Uh, and a pleural effusion, if it's seen on a chest X-ray, is usually when the fluid is greater than 200 mils, and this is due to the dome shape of the diaphragm, which extends deeper posteriorly to anteriorly. A chest ultrasound is used to assess how large the effusion is whether it's simple or loculated with septations and it also allows you to mark a safe area to perform your pleural tap at the time of procedure. A contrast CT, most useful post-drainage remember, is to investigate for an underlying cause, particularly for excretive effusions looking for malignancy. Other investigations you'd want to do include blood tests, a full blood count CRP to look for signs of infection or inflammation and clotting prior to pleural procedures, you need to check that INR is less than 1.5 and platelets are normal. You'll want to perform a pleural tap if you're suspecting a cause other than heart failure or if the effusion is not improving with management of heart failure to rule out other causes. You'd particularly want to do a pleural tap if you have a septic patient that you think might have an empyema Or if you think they have a malignant pleural effusion, you'd do a small volume aspiration for diagnosis or a larger volume therapeutic thoracic centesis to relieve symptoms of dyspnea. As mentioned, the ultrasound should be used in the area marked, which should be within the safety triangle. Anatomically, that's marked laterally by the lateral border of the latissimus dorsi and the lateral border of the pectoralis major. And inferiorly by the fifth intercostal space. A bedside ultrasound strongly recommended for all pleural procedures but the marking of a site for later subsequent remote aspiration or chest strain insertion is not recommended unless you have a very large pleural effusion and that's because the fluid may move as um, patients position changes and so what was safe when they were in a particular position in the ultrasound room won't necessarily be the same place when they're back up on the ward. The procedure to performing a pleural tap you need to check that they're not taking any blood thinners. Drugs like warfarin are usually stopped five full days before the procedure and you have an INR test before to make sure it's less than 1.5. Aspirin can be continued, but clopidogrel is stopped for seven full days before the procedure and no acts such as apixaban, dabigatran or rivaroxaban are usually stopped 48 hours prior to the procedure. You need to consent the patient for the procedure. The main things that you would consent a patient for are the risk of pneumothorax, which is about 3%, damage to surrounding structures, bleeding, pain, infection and failure of procedure. So using an aseptic technique you would clean the area, attach a syringe to a green needle which is 21 gauge and advance into the pleural space aiming to insert the needle just above the rib and this is to avoid the neurovascular bundle which tends to run underneath the rib. You'd be aspirating continuously as you enter the needle until the pleural is reached and fluid is withdrawn into your needle. You want to take off about 50 mils, send for a samples to the lab. The samples you would want are a pH, protein, an LDH, cytology, and send a sample to microscopy and culture. Those are your routine tests and in other cases you might want to also send for an amylase, glucose or acid bacilli. You don't need to use local anaesthesia to do a pleural tap. To do the procedure, you only need to put in one needle anyway, and it can affect the results. But you should use local anaesthesia if you're going to be doing a therapeutic aspiration. After a pleurotap, you're not required to perform a post-procedure chest x-ray unless when you were doing the procedure, you aspirated air, or if the procedure was really difficult and multiple attempts were required, or if the patient later becomes symptomatic. You would, however, x-ray following a therapeutic aspiration and definitely after a chest drain to ensure there's no atrogenic pneumothorax. So in terms of interpreting the results of your pleural fluid, when you've got your results back from the lab, you need to look at the protein and the LDH to decide if the effusion is a transudate or an exudate. If you have a borderline sample, then you can use Light's criteria, which is defined as the following. The ratio of pleural fluid protein to serum protein is greater than 0.5. The ratio of pleural fluid LDH and serum LDH is greater than 0.6. The pleural fluid LDH is greater than 0.6 or two thirds of times the upper limit of normal for the serum. So if it's an exudate, they can fulfil any one of those three criteria. Some people find it helpful to remember eggs have a good source of protein and therefore an exudate is one with a high protein content. So causes of an exudative effusion. The most common cause is infection, pneumonia. other infections include TB. The cancers that can cause an exudative pleural effusion are lung in 40%, breast 25%, and then ovarian, gastric, lymphoma, and unknown primary. Other things that cause an exudative effusion are rheumatological conditions such as rheumatoid, SLE, and Srograms. You can also get an exudative effusion in pancreatitis, PEs, benign asbestos pleural effusion, post-MI or cabbage, called Dresler's syndrome, and very rarely yellow nail syndrome and some drugs. A transitive effusion, which is a low protein effusion less than 30 grams per litre, are caused by your failures. So that's heart failure, left ventricular failure being most common, liver and kidney failure, usually due to low albumin and things like nephrotic syndrome or peritoneal dialysis, hypothyroid, mitral stenosis and rarely MAG syndrome or constrictive pericarditis. I found some of the other useful characteristics to remember your differential diagnosis for pleural fluid is actually what the fluid itself looks like. If it's milky, you might have a chylothorax or a pseudochylothorax, which is caused by lymphatic obstruction, either by cancer, chronic inflammation, or a thoracic duct injury caused by surgery or trauma. If you have a chylothorax you would have a triglyceride level greater than 1.25 millimoles per litre and a cholesterol of less than 5.8. If you have a pseudokylothorax the fluid triglyceride level is low 0.56 millimoles per litre with a cholesterol of greater than 5.18. If you have very turbid fluid this tends to be linked to an empyema If you have heavily blood-stained fluid, it's usually a mesothelioma or TB, lung cancers. If you have a raised amylase, then that can be indicative of pancreatitis or an esophageal perforation. If you have a low glucose, rheumatoid arthritis and TB. Very rarely, the pleural fluid might be black. And this could suggest an aspergillus niger infection or malignant melanoma, which the blackness is caused by the melanin pigment. And it can also be caused by a hemorrhage or hemolysis associated with non-small cell lung cancer. Pleural fluid with a pH of less than 7.2 is caused by an empyema. But don't forget there are other causes of a low pH. And those are things like rheumatoid pleuritis, TB malignancy and esophageal rupture in malignant infusions the lower the ph actually the more extensive the pleural involvement is likely to be and it's associated with a much shorter life expectancy so i hope you found this useful as a quick run through of pleural fusions um, i'm going to talk about chest drains and management options for pleural effusions in another podcast thanks for listening and we'll see you next time